0: I'd ask you to please take your Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Thessalonians today 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 we'll be considering the opening verses there and uh, those of us those of you who are visiting those of us those of you who are visiting we normally do preach through books of the Bible or find ourselves in the midst of expositions in the Gospel of Mark and uh, in light of some recent circumstances in my own life, the loss of my father a few days ago and Others who are suffering affliction, I thought it might be good for us to take a break from those expositions and to consider the topic of the key to enduring trials and affliction. And in our text, we'll see that that is steadfastness and faith. So I will read the first ten verses. Our exposition will be only of the first four verses, but to get the broader context for us. So please follow along as I read. Paul, and Salvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all of your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, It is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. May the Lord add his blessing to his own word. Let us pray once again. Our Father in heaven, as we approach your word, Corporately and corporate worship this day, Lord. We pray that you would have your way with each and every heart here. Lord, we pray for those who are in Christ that their faith would be built up, Lord, that they would be better able to endure the difficulties and trials that are sure to come to each of us in this life through different waves and in different seasons. And Lord, for any here who are outside of Christ, even the... The very blunt language here of the Lord Jesus Christ dealing out retribution to those that do not obey the gospel. May they be shaken from their slumber. May they be awoken from their deception. May you have mercy on their eternal souls. Lord, we pray that you would send the Holy Spirit in our midst even now. We pray that you would be pleased to help the one speaking as well as to give hearts that are attentive that are listening for what you have for them. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity that we have to be together on this glorious Lord's Day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As I said, the title of the message is Enduring Trials and Affliction with Steadfastness and Faith. And one of the things that we need to realize is that our souls actually profit from suffering and affliction when it comes our way. Oh, it's very difficult when we're going through the difficult times, when we're going through those dark seasons. It's, it's extremely difficult. But the end result is that we would be more purified, that our hope would be more steadfast in Christ and on his unshakable sovereign rule over all things. And, and you know, if you try to explain this to a nominal Christian, it's a hard pill to swallow. They don't understand that, especially young people. They haven't ex- had to experience the difficulties that can come our way. But it is very true, and, and even true of our flock here, with many going through various afflictions and trials. And, 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 you know, it's a reminder of how weak we really are, how little strength we really have. But in the end, in God's divine sovereignty, the trials and troubles that come in our lives are meant to to, to grow us, And we need to be assured that the Lord reigns. He always has and he always will. Trials and afflictions occur in your life for your own good. For your own spiritual growth. So that you can grow closer to the Lord. Trials bring you nearer to God and prepare you for that everlasting inheritance that is guaranteed to be ours. Those who are trusting in Christ. And, And as his child... Christ has promised and pledged to bring you home to that place of eternal happiness where there will be no more tears and no more sorrow. We need to be reminded of what James says at the beginning of his letter. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. That's varied colored trials. The trials will come from all different fronts in different times, various difficulties and trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance. In our text here, Paul is writing to this, this church, this church that was founded in the midst of persecution, and, and he writes a second letter, I think, probably within months from his first letter. And this church was had certain marks that identified it. And there's many churches in the U.S. and San Diego that place as much emphasis on entertainment and coffee shops, and low lights, and candles, and pretty colors, and all of these types of things to try to make the world feel comfortable inside the church. They build fancy buildings. They build large pillars. By stark contrast, this church in Thessalonica was marked by what? They were marked by their sufferings and their afflictions. They had no building to meet in. They they didn't have all of these, the glitz and, and all of that. Most of its members were from the lower classes. No programs to offer, but it was known for endurance through suffering and affliction. That is how the Apostle Paul and Timothy and Sylvanus knew them. Can you imagine being known for that? Think of the church in other parts of the world. Christians who are being executed for their faith. Think of the church in North Korea and China and ethiopia nigeria uh, these places where persecution is fierce and god in his sovereign plan uses that to grow the church persecution persecution difficulties trials strengthen our faith they drive us to god and the more we go to god the more we go to him the more we know him and the more we know him we know that he can be trusted in the midst of it I'm not giving an extensive uh, introduction to this letter. We don't have time for that. I commend to you Acts 17 as you can read to see how the church was actually established as Luke records it for us. But what were the reasons for Paul writing the second letter so close to the first letter? I think there's a few. I think the church was founded in the midst of persecution and suffering, but I think that the persecution actually intensified. Really, that's that's the totality. Of chapter 1 encouraging them to press on, commending them, giving them encouragement for what they were doing well, but they were also confused about the day of the Lord. So, large portions are given to the doctrine of last things or eschatology. And the third reason, I think, was that it was in relation to the second that some had stopped working and were becoming idle, as he addresses that in chapter 3 and he wanted to correct that. But large chunks are given in both letters to the doctrine of eschatology. In fact, 1 Thessalonians, in each chapter, it talks about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is our great hope, that he is indeed coming again, that we will be with him, and that all other things in this life pale in comparison. For Paul, all of the Christian life has to do with eschatology, and everything hinges on the coming of Christ. It's my prayer that we as a church would be found to be like this church here, abounding in faith and love and being marked by endurance in the midst of suffering. So I've divided the text into three simple points. And the first is I want to look at Paul's theological salutation. What is a salutation? It's a a greeting. It comes from the word salute, um, an address, a welcome. And that's what Paul does here in the first couple of verses. Paul validates, first of all, that this is a true church. Look at what he says. He says, to the church of the Thessalonians. So he's validating that this is indeed what he believes to be a New Testament church. Jesus Christ had said in Matthew 16 that he will indeed build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. He says it's the church of the Thessalonians, the church that is there. And then look what he says. He says, in God and our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This church was marked by union with Christ, union with God. And Christians are in true union with God and Christ if they are truly saved. And this, this union is not something that's generic, it's not a corporate level. It's individual believers who have been justified by faith alone in union with Jesus Christ. It's personal, it's spiritual, it's eternal, and it's, it's vital for what he's about to say. Peter would write in his second letter that we are partakers of the divine nature. And then he says, in God our Father. I love it when that when it talks about our Father. It speaks of the doctrine of adoption. The doctrine of adoption is one of the most comforting doctrines that you can ever study, that you can ever meditate on. And, and this is marvelous because the, many of the members of this church were formerly pagans. And now they have a fact the apex of redemptive privilege is adoption and by faith that you are a child of god and in a very real sense you and i who are in christ are the children of god and that's very comforting for us john writes in chapter three of his first letter see how great a love the father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of god Actually, Paul elaborates on that extensively in Romans 8, uh, verses 14 to 17. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which you cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Of course, he uses the full title, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is probably a mix of Jews and Gentiles in this church. Verse 2, he gives this, um, these gracious words, grace to you and peace. Grace and peace, these sweet words that mark many of the epistles. Uh, You know, words that simply sum up the gospel of God's free grace to depraved sinners. Grace, undeserved favor from Almighty God, extended to those that are undeserving. Peace is the peaceful result, the fruitful result of that grace. Paul makes it very explicit here. Look in the text. Grace to you and peace from Timothy and Paul and Silas. No, it's from what? It's from God the Father, right, emphasizing that again, and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the source of grace and peace. That is the source of your comfort. Clearly, this choice of words, Paul is demonstrating his belief in the deity of Christ, and he doesn't feel he has to elaborate that. So that's the theological salutation. Let's move on. Paul is thankful for their faith and love. Let's read verse 3 again. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and your love for each one of you towards one another grows ever greater. Why was he so thankful? It wasn't because of the big budgets. It wasn't because of the new building. It wasn't because of any other carnal thing like that. It was because their faith and love were growing and abounding. That's why Paul feels... In fact, Paul has a sense of obligation to give thanks to God. And, and, you know, some commentators say, well, Paul was grudging, you know, okay, I'll be thanks. I guess I'll be thankful for you. No, Paul is freely giving thanks. He feels it's a debt to God because he knows that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is building the church. The writers show themselves to be exuberant rather than hesitant. Paul ought That's the idea that it's the right thing to do, give thanks to God. For Paul, it was like a a moral obligation of paying back a debt. When you borrow money or something like that, and you have that obligation to pay that back, that's what Paul felt. In fact, the word means to owe or to be in debt for or to be under obligation bound by duty or necessity to do something. And that's what Paul is saying here. We ought always to give thanks to God For you, brethren, Paul uses that word about 15 times, but it's only here in relation to giving thanks, and in this case, thanks for this small, struggling, faithful church. For Paul, it's a personal obligation to God, because the work of God was there. And how was God working? We've already said it, because of the steadfastness of this church and their abounding faith me to think about what type of things do we give thanks for we know we're supposed to give thanks right give thanks to god for all things um, give thanks always many many verses that speak to that but what do we give thanks to god for does it tend to be more for the new car the raise at work the whatever you know these types of things are they're good to give thanks to god he's sovereign in, in all things but do we really find ourselves as we're praying as, as we're beseeching God each morning, giving thanks to God for the work that he's doing in our brethren. You see, that's what Paul's doing here. He's, he's thinking of the, the exemplary faith, the love that has been growing and abounding. And, and, and he's giving thanks to God for that, a debt of thanks. How we need to examine ourselves as to what we give thanks for. Not the temporal things, but those eternal fruits. And their faith was growing more and more. He says in verse 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. It's peri. It's the idea of concerning you. Great concern. Concerning you as I think of you. I owe God a great debt of thanksgiving. And he says "Because because your faith is greatly enlarged. That's a unique selection of words. And think about it. So your faith is enlarged as one thing, but greatly enlarged. Paul is trying to communicate something here that that their faith had grown so quick and so huge that it was something worth mentioning. And this word that he uses means it's only used one time in the Greek New Testament to increase beyond measure, to grow exceedingly. And that's the way Paul saw their faith has the idea of an organic growth from inside as God works and conforms us and, and, and increases our faith. How do you measure one's faith? It's not like when you go to the doctor kids and they well, they don't use thermometers anymore. They shoot a gun in your ear and somehow it tells you what temperature you are or whatever that thing is. but. But, you know, it's not like it's not like we can we can do a spiritual checkup on you and put a thermometer in your mouth to see how strong your faith is and how your spiritual walk is. Right. We can't do that. But what we know is we know them by their fruits, as we studied in the parable of the soils for several weeks. And and in this this church, they were bearing up under difficulties and trials. They weren't allowing the weeds of the world to completely entangle them so that they could hardly move or make any progress. They weren't shallow ground hearers in which the sun of persecution comes and they wither away and they fall off the scene here today, gone tomorrow. But they were bearing fruit. And the fruit was that their faith was strong, evidenced by, as he goes as we move on, by their love for one another growing ever stronger. Their endurance, as we'll see in a moment in verse 4, growing ever stronger. That's the measure of one's faithful, of one's faith, is, is by one's faithfulness. How is their spiritual growth? Are there, is their life marked by holiness? Are they glorifying God in all things? Are they involved in the lives of the people of this church? Are you kind of like a back row, slip in, slip out kind of thing? That's how you can tell how one's faith is. How do they bear up under difficulties? Their faith was greatly enlarged, growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, as Peter says at the end of the second letter. He also says their love for one another grows more and more. The love of each one towards one another. And what did Jesus say in John 15? By this, all men will know that you are my disciples love is one of the marks of a true disciple of Christ and by this all men will know that you are my disciples And, and what he says here again the superlatives that he uses in your love for each one another towards one another grows ever greater the idea is it's super abounding it's the same word that Paul used in the first letter in his pastoral prayer, which is tucked right in the middle as a hinge between the doctrinal section and the practical section at the end of chapter three. He says, now may our God and father himself and Jesus, our Lord, direct our way to you and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, that he may establish your heart's, without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But you see there, one of his requests is that their love would grow. Here he is writing, I think some months, maybe six months later, and and, and he's received reports that their love is super abounding. And he's seeking to encourage them by that. 1 Thessalonians 4.9, also, just a little bit later from where I read, it says, now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. What is he saying there? He's saying that this church already excels in love for the brethren, love for one another. Uh, I really don't even have to mention it, but I'm going to mention it anyway, and then he throws on that what? But excel still more. You see, there's not a place where we arrive where Okay, our love for one another, we've reached the top, right? There's always room to excel still more. And that's true of us. And I think our church is marked by genuine love, one for another, in and, and most cases, uh, and most of the people. But, but it, I would say what Paul says, excel still more. This church was super abounding in love, faith and love. Two wonderful marks. Peter says, and... His first letter, chapter 1, verse 22, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. He's doing the same thing, right? He's commending his uh, uh, readers, right, that there is a sincere love, but then he gives the imperative, but fervently love one another. So, faith and love, some of the marks. So, Paul owes this debt of thanksgiving, and then thirdly, remain steadfast in trials and afflictions. Let's read verse 4 again. Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions, perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. The intensity of the afflictions toward this church was great. Again, a quick reading of Acts 17, and you will see that. You will see how this church was marked and established even by afflictions. In fact, in the first letter, again, in chapter 3 and verse 3, he says, So that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. He's saying, don't be surprised by trials, right? This is what you've been destined for. Verse 7 of that same chapter. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we are comforted about you through your faith. And so affliction was something in which was present at the establishment of this church. It was present as the church was growing. The Lord was using it to deepen the love and faith of one another. And, and they were enduring these persecutions. Now this word perseverance, is Sometimes translated steadfastness is what the ESV has, um, patience in some cases, depending on the context, but, but that's the idea. And um, later in chapter three, would say, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. It, it means to bear up patiently. It, it's when I, I read James 1 earlier, it's the idea that the, the peace, knowing that detesting your faith, produces this endurance patience steadfastness and persecution here in verse four towards the end there is is the assaults made on christians specifically for what on account of their their christian testimony this is what we see in the persecuted church because it's only on account of their christian testimony just like The forerunners of the Reformation, just like after the Reformation, those being burned at the stake, all they had to do was what? Deny Christ, in most cases. And yet, they didn't. They maintained their confession, their profession, and persecution comes because of our Christian beliefs. And and the, the root of this word can mean one person that persecutes others as well. But this kind of persecution many Christians contend with around the world, as I said. And, and we, we know little about what this is like. I mean, we have it relatively easy here in the United States, don't we? We have it relatively easy here in Southern California. You know, we're right next door to a large mosque. And, and you know, uh, we don't have any guarantee of when, or when things will actually heat up. And already, those leading Bible studies, those doing these kinds of things, those street preaching in New Jersey, who we prayed for, are, are, are already being arrested and put in jail. And So the freedoms we're losing more and more. And again, don't be surprised by persecution when it comes. It's the norm for the Christian church. We live in an anomaly. <laughs> it really is. It's, some, it's something that's unusual to church history. Just study the last 2,000 years of church history. Bread of Islam, 1.3 billion, the latest statistic I heard, Muslims, probably much more than that. That's an official uh, number, but we should be ready. We should be looking to endure in the midst of them. Paul uses a second word. this in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions. Now, afflictions is a more general term, speaking of trouble, trials, um, difficulties, and so forth that we might meet with. In fact, I'd like to ask you to turn to uh, 2 Corinthians 4 where our New Testament reading was. I want to consider just for a brief moment verse 17 and 18, the last two verses of the chapter where Paul uses the same word here. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul here is, is this is an amazing verse. First of all, they're momentary, not simply in duration. You may struggle with cancer for 20 years in your life. You may have Certain afflictions, health afflictions, be a quadriplegic all your life. It's not so much duration, but it's this present life compared with all eternity. Therefore, it is momentary. Look what else he says. He says it's light affliction. That means the affliction that you endure in this life is like a feather that falls from a bird that my little new daughter, Emily, will pick up. And look, I found a feather. It's so light. That's the way your afflictions are, no matter how fierce they are. And look at what Paul says. Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. A glory has as its root, um, at least in the Hebrew, the idea of, of weight and the heavy is actually another translation of that word. So and, and when he says an eternal weight of a weight, really, of glory, Far beyond all comparison. Paul is trying to communicate something to us, and with Paul's case, from personal experience. That this is producing something that you can't fully grasp. You can't fully understand. You can't fully see. Remember, that's what he says in verse 18. It's the things that are not seen, right, that are producing this in us. The word he uses here uh, means Pressing together. It's a metaphor for oppression and affliction and tribulation. And and for Paul, they lasted from his conversion to his martyrdom. In fact, the the example of Paul is that they were very real. He was poor, often hungry, homeless, and stoned. In fact, in 2 Corinthians later, in chapter 11, which I look at this as more as autobiography, he says this in verse 23 of chapter 11. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so, in far more labors, and far more imprisonments, beaten five times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and exposure. That's the norm. Now, go through that and check off, yeah, well, I've only been shipwrecked once. Uh, I've only been out in exposure. I've only been hungry no, no times in my life, right? I mean, r- real hunger uh, like this. But then for Paul, of course, because his grand concern is the church of Christ as the apostle to the Gentiles. He goes on and he says, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all The churches. These external things were secondary. They weren't primary. Even though his flesh suffered pain, even though he was hungry, all of these distresses, and yet for him the great concern is the church of Christ and the glory of Christ. For me to live is Christ to die is gain. That was Paul's mantra so when Paul writes, as he does back here in, in chapter 4, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Paul did not regard his afflictions as little things. He felt the full force and pressure and in their intensity. But it was only in bringing those afflictions, those bodily afflictions, all of those afflictions in comparison to the eternal glory that yet awaits that they became insignificant. And so when you go through difficulties and trials, if you're not comparing them to the eternal weight of glory that yet waits, your eternal inheritance with the Lord, if if you're so consumed with self and what's going on in your own life and you lose of what yet awaits. Yes, you will be weighed down. You will not be lifted up. You will enter depression. You will be discouraged. It's having the right, uh, uh, that's what he says while we look, look at this, while we look, it's to gaze upon, while we look, not at the things which are seen, not at the diagnosis from the doctor, not at the blood results, not at the difficulties, not at your own bruises. Not at any of that. While we look, what? At the things that are not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. Don't focus on those, those things that we see. Focus on what is not seen by faith. Notice the contrast. He used a moment compared to eternity. The lightness of a feather compared to a weight of glory and then affliction compared to glory. The key is having our focus right. And for this church, this church had their focus right. Why does God allow these difficulties in our life? It's for our own good. The psalmist says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. What happens is God brings wake-up calls into our life so that suddenly we realize... What's really important in this life? It's not about being consumed with my little circumstances. It's about walking with the Lord by faith, trusting in what he has. George Swinock, great Puritan, says, a sanctified person like a silver bell, the harder he is smitten, the better he sounds. The more difficult your afflictions and sufferings in this life If 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 the Lord has his work in you producing maturity, you become a sweeter person. That you can weep with those that weep. You can laugh with those that laugh. You can enter in and bring encouragement and come alongside someone that might need that. But you know what? If the wind's at your back and you never incur any difficulties or setbacks in this life, you know what happens? Your head would not fit in this whole room. Because it would be so large from pride that everything's going good here. And what needs to happen is the balloon of pride needs to be popped and you need to be humbled. And God in his love and sovereignty and his fatherly care brings these things into our life to awaken us from our slumber, to remember what's really important. And so that he might have that work of sanctification within us. This church back to Thessalonians was so exemplary. You know, it's amazing. You think about a struggling small church marked by affliction. And I mean, the, the strength of what Paul says in the second half of chapter 1 indicates they were suffering physically as well. But notice what Paul says. He says, We ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God. You know what usually prompts us to speak loud or proudly of other churches? It's the amount of their membership, it's the building. It's the programs and all of that, right? But not for Paul. Paul says, faith and love and endurance, these are the keys of which I, will, I am proud of you. The church there had the faith that enabled them to weather all the trials and persecutions that they were enduring. So Paul and his companions were thankful for them. It's not customary for preachers to boast about their converts. Uh, in fact, actually, turn back to chapter uh, First Thessalonians chapter 1. I'll show you one verse here. Verse 8 and 9. So in the first letter, it says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Archaea, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us, what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. There, he's receiving, uh, he's hearing the testimony of others about this church. But here, notice what he says We ourselves speak proudly of you, of the members of this church. Essentially, they were boasting about the perseverance and faithfulness that God had given them. And so really what Paul is saying is this is a model church. This church is exemplary in what they're doing. They're faithful. They're enduring the difficulties with faith and moving forward and allowing the gospel to be magnified from their presence. Also notice the manner. Uh, just think if you were part of this church, okay? In the 50s roughly, right? and you received a letter from the Apostle Paul, you saw him preach, whatever he was, if it was three Lord's Days or a couple months, it was a very short amount of time. There were converts, the church was established, they received the first letter, soon after that, the second letter. Would this warm your heart to receive this commendation, this encouragement? See, I don't think this would lead to pride. It would encourage them in the midst of what they were going through. And so we see Paul really... Being an encourager to these new Christians, perhaps less than a year in the faith. And again, I we ask ourselves how we need to encourage one another, and are we encouraging one another? Are we encouraging one another for the good that we see in each other? Richard Baxter has said it. It much more concerns us, it much more concerns us to be sure that we have not deserved suffering than to be delivered from it. And I think what Baxter is saying is that if God brings suffering, and it's not because of your own sin and foolishness, that you can trust God to sustain you and to bring you through that. If he's the one that sovereignly brought it, he has a purpose why he's brought it, and he will bring you through it. Does that make sense? But... How many difficulties and things that we go through as a result of our sin? That's not to say he won't bring us through it. We may have to drag through the mud a little bit more, um, but he will indeed bring us through that. Persecution also exposes false converts. This is why, where we've seen the church grow, um, Korea the last 120 years or so, China the last 50 years, the church has grown so rapidly because there has been persecution and it removes the tares from the wheat. It's a purifying effect for the church. And so when there's these trials and difficulties, the fair weather followers, what happens? Okay, this isn't for me. I'm going to the next social club or whatever. Or, you know, as we learn, the shallow ground here in the parable of the sowers, when affliction comes, and notice it's always because of the word. They fall away. They fall away. Is there reasons for the leaders of this church to give praise for you? Is there reasons for them to boast for you? Do they see the evidences of faith and love and endurance in your life? I would say largely we do. But again, we should excel still more. Are we growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ when these things come? Are, are we heeding the admonition to use all the means of grace that God has provided so that we might grow and be conformed into the image of Christ? And thirdly, under this last point, you must endure persecutions and afflictions. Paul says that this young church, well, it was, in, in present tense, was enduring. Okay, This wasn't something they they endured this persecution or the church being burned down or whatever. And that's it. No, it's present tense. They were enduring. It was a pattern of enduring. One man says, this shows that the church, which had been born in a storm of persecution, was still bravely bearing up with unwavering faith. You look at those opening, those seven letters to the church and um, Revelation, right, the seven churches, and, and several of them enduring fierce persecutions and and difficulties and and the encouragement to press on. John Trapp says, saints must be the best and worst times. So how are you doing when the storms come? How are you doing with the difficulty that might be in your life even right now this very day? How are you bearing up under these difficulties that come into each of our lives the discouragement, the frustrations, the ridicule for our faith, uh, the the health uh, sufferings, and, and all of this loss of a loved one—how are we doing with this? It's something to ask yourself, and it's something to prepare yourself ahead of time, so that when the storm comes, you will not be taken by surprise. Oh yes, I know that there are some things that come, and it it takes a while for the reality to set in, but but still, as long as we have the fortitude and we know that God is sovereign in these things, these will help to bring us through. Peter, in his first letter, chapter 1 of verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When he says here, enduring these trials, if necessary, yes, they're necessary when God brings them, but notice, he says, so that, here's the purpose, the proof of your faith. Uh, the, the word there has the idea to approve after trial. And so the proof of your faith, having been approved through that trial, being more precious than gold, will be found to result in praise and glory and honor to our Lord. 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. So, the key to enduring afflictions and trials. The steadfastness that comes from God. The love of the brethren. And a growing faith. Just a couple points of conclusion and application. We must endure difficulties when they come our way. Embrace them as coming from the very sovereign hand of God. Have that mindset. Do not begin to question God. Is this really from God? God must have been asleep at the wheel because he allowed that to happen. No, that's how... Carnal Christianity thinks, largely, God is sovereign and in control of everything, and we need to see what the spiritual benefit is for our souls. Henry Smith said, God examines us with trials. The devil examines us with temptations. The world examines us with persecutions. Your faith and love should be abounding now, today. Those of you who are suffering, you may feel beat up, you may feel... Like you're ready to give up. You may feel weak and frail through it all. How we need to look to Christ yet again. Through the eye of faith, we look to Him, knowing that He who endured all manner of hostility, even the wrath of God for our sins, placed upon Him, paid that price. And so for us, we need to keep our eyes on Christ. The writer of the Hebrews fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. The psalmist says, teach us to number our days. Be reminded of the brevity of life. You have no guarantee that you will be alive tomorrow. You should have these dealings with God on a regular basis. You don't know what's going to happen. A plane could fall out of the sky, a, a semi-truck smack into you. In fact, we were just commenting on this. It was probably three times in the last seven days that we almost got into an accident as a family together in the car. We're not always in the car together, uh, but the, the family and the six of us, and, and it, w- it was a reminder that, wow, <laughs> we need to be looking out for the other guy, but also that, that God could cause something to happen. We, have, we don't have control of that, and the key to going through difficult things is to use the means of grace Finding yourself in the Word of God, which feeds your very soul. Finding yourself communing with God, keeping your eyes fixed on Him. And of course, the Lord's Day means of grace, such as the ordinance and the preached Word. All of these things are vital to our endurance. <coughs> Can't emphasize how important that is. And let me tell you something. If you're forsaking regular Bible reading and prayer, and corporate worship when trials come when you find that you can't have an eternal focus that's the very reason why God has designed us to where we need these kinds of things to remind us of these things to be heirs with Christ we must be willing to suffer with him as we read if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him listen to A.W. Pink commenting on Romans with God working all things together for good. All things work together for good. They not only operate, but they cooperate. They all act in perfect concert through none, but the anointed ear can catch the strains of their harmony. Uh, What is he saying there? That through the midst of difficulties and trials, when you have that confidence, Romans 8.21 is true, it's a harmony that you can hear as a true believer that those outside of Christ can't. This does makes no sense to the unbeliever. If you're here today and you're outside of Christ, we implore you to flee to Christ, to look to him. You see, one of the things that is a reoccurring theme to the word of God is that every man will give an account to God, but also that hypocrites will be exposed, oftentimes by difficulties and persecutions, difficulties and trials, the genuineness of your faith you could fool all the people in this room but you're not fooling God you need to have true repentance and faith in Christ alone by his work alone for some it will be a shocking terror and I'll just end with re-reading a couple of these verses that those in verse 7 of chapter 1 here when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven and his mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those that do not know God and those who do not obey our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say what that looks like. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. That's pretty clear, isn't it? We don't really have to. We can trust our English translations. Eternal destruction, and, and in a case you don't get that, away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. If you think your works are good enough, that somehow you're good enough to stand before a holy God, you will be in for a rude awakening. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling cry of the hymn writer, and that means to be the cry of each one of the children of God. Trust in his righteousness, what he's accomplished, not your own righteousness. He never sinned. He kept all of God's law perfectly. The father was satisfied with the death of his son. Trust in him. Let us pray. Our father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and your kindness extended to each one of us. We thank you for your persevering grace. Lord, that you are sovereign in the midst of afflictions and trials. Lord, strengthen our faith. courage our hearts. Increase our love one for another. Lord, we know that you are working in us. The ability to endure whatever would come our way. We thank you that you are a father that is near, you're a father that is close, you're a father that cares, a father that's tender to your blood-bought children. Receive our thanks in Christ's precious name.